Do take your Bibles and turn with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 1. And this Gospel we're, we, we've launched on a study of begins with this great section that runs from one, verses 1 to 18. I'm not sure that we'll finish it all this evening. In fact, I'm sure we won't because uh, you're wilting already. If I tried to finish it, you'd be dead. We don't, I, and I don't really have time to fit in all the funerals. So rather than, than do that, we'll, we, we'll try and finish it earlier. But uh, I think the Apostle John who wrote this probably wrote this, this first bit last. He re- recorded the story of Jesus. He, he took his notes. He, he uh, structured very carefully what, what he was going to tell us about the life of Jesus. John's Gospel is very highly structured. And one of the the ways in which you can tell the story of someone's life is not simply recalling some incidents from their life, but actually selecting from their life incidents that tell you something more about the character and the personality of the person that you're describing. And that's what John is doing with Jesus in, in this book. And in this opening segment, which is a hymn, really, or a psalm dedicated to one who describes as the Word the Word who was God and the Word who was with God and the Word who became flesh and who was in the beginning with God. This Word of revelation, this Word of introduction. He's beginning with the assumption, you see, that God is invisible and God is inaudible to our hearing, but this God who is invisible and inaudible to our hearing has communicated with us. He has communicated with us through this individual. We find he's an individual. You can distinguish him from God. He's given personal descriptions early on. We're not told who he is until later on. In fact, not until verse 17 are we given the official description of who he was, his human name, which is Yeshua, Jesus. At the beginning of the gospel, he focuses on the eternal person, the Word, in the beginning was the Word. And he takes us right back to the, to the book of Moses, the beginning of the book of Moses, which is the beginning of our Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first section has to do with creation. In Psalm 147, the psalmist says that God sent forth His Word, and then he goes on to describe all the things that God does with His Word. His acts of creation were acts of power. The, the proclamation of what God wants, His will for the world, was done by the Word of God. And so he begins here by describing the creation event. That at the beginning, before it all began, there was this being, the Word. And with the Word, history begins. As he says uh, in verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All things made through Him. Without Him, nothing made that was made. And you notice that he excludes any form of dualism. The ancient world sometimes talked in terms of a dualism, material and the spiritual and so on. There's no dualism. Material things have not been existed always. There is no eternal material state. Rather, What is matter comes into being as a result of the Word. The Word brings it into being. 
Another Psalm 33 puts it like this. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the earth by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it was done. And this is all gathered up now, you see. What the word of God does, we discover the word, with a capital W, the person who speaks the word, accomplishes in creation. Well, then the second little section in verses 3 to 5 moves from creation to history. In him was life, and the life was the, the light of men. In the Genesis account, when we read about the, the origins of the universe, we hear the word, the, the word of God, let there be, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be, and as that word is spoken, so things happen, things come into being, and they culminate with the word breathing the breath of life into human beings, well, into all flesh and then into human beings. And that last act of creation, that last act of the Word of God in the original creation forms a creature made in the image of God, having had the breath of God breathed into him. He is a living creature made in the image of God, made to recognize God, made to know God and have a relationship with God and give God glory. Psalm 36 says, For with you is the source of life, and in your light we see light. That was the way it was meant to be for image bearers, human beings. They were meant to be enlightened by God and by the Word of God. That's why we're told that the Word of God here was life, and the life was the light of men. It was the enlightenment of men. And we're told that this disruption, this disruption caused by human rebellion, has brought an impenetrable darkness into the minds and lives of of men and women. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. At the first creation, the darkness was a material or, or was, was just nothing. It was just dark. There was no light created at that point. God speaks a word, creates light, and then creates the heavenly bodies that manage the light for the sake of those who live on the earth. God does that in the beginning. But when we come to this record of the new creation, which John is giving us here, he's thinking this time not of the darkness that we imagined that, that we experienced last night in our house because we had a power cut yesterday morning and it went all the way through to this morning. And last night, our house was in total darkness, as was our whole side of the street. Total darkness. And uh, we're going around with candles. And, and I'm reading my sermon note by candles. And I'm thinking that I'm John Wesley or George Whitfield or somebody. Really, study you my sermon by, by candlelight. Glad I don't have to preach this evening with a candle because it was going all over me. Anyway, that, that's, that's another matter. But, but the kind of darkness that John is speaking about here in this record of the new creation is a darkness 
that is spiritual, that grips the minds and hearts, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the tragedy of the human race. Some of us can remember it was the tragedy of our lives before our eyes were opened to see it. And John says, this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not grasped it in the sense of understood it or overcome it. The word that's used can mean either of those, as I said last time. And I think it's probably meant to be both of them. The darkness doesn't understand who Jesus is or who the Word is. The darkness, at the same time, cannot destroy him, cannot overcome him, cannot conquer him or stamp him out, or enfold him, so that the light is extinguished. From creation to history, from creation to history to prophecy, verses 6 to 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John comes to complete the witness of Israel to its Messiah and act as the first eyewitness of the Messiah's arrival on the scene. He came, we read, as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Prophecy. And then, in the fourth section, there is a contradiction. God's revelation of himself, verse 9, is the true light that enlightens everyone. If you're going to get light in your life, you're going to be enlightened, you have to be enlightened by the genuine article, the real thing, the true light that comes into the world, the Word coming into the world. He penetrates this present darkness. He was in the world. You notice that, verse 10, he was in the world. The stakes are raised. The one who was in the world made the world. The world was made by him. Here is the tragedy. The tragedy is that the world that was made by him did not recognize its maker didn't recognize him. The world did not know him. That's the general state of things. John presses further. He says that even his own, he comes to his own place. That is Jerusalem and Judah. He comes to his own people. His own people did not receive him. In other words, the people who had the knowledge, the people who had the insight, the people who had the scriptures, the people who had the testimony of the prophets, they did not receive him. Didn't matter how much light they had, they didn't receive him. There is this contradiction that lies at the heart of humanity, that the true light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. The people walking in darkness squinted and shut their eyes at the coming of the light. As it says in chapter 12, the glory, they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. He comes to his own people, those who were his special possession. And they did not receive him. That's the tragedy that's going to run through the story that John is recording here in his gospel. But then also John records this miraculous thing that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the authority, the right, the power, the authority to be children of God. 
there was a remnant. As there always is, there is a remnant of people. Isaiah had prophesied there would be a remnant. There would be some who would, who would survive, who would see the truth, who would recognize the truth, who would receive it to themselves. And there were those who did receive him. And they believed in his name. And they, became, they were given the right to become children of God. Let me put it to you like this. John is writing this to some of his Jewish compatriots, and he's saying this. There are children of Abraham, and there are children of Abraham who share the faith of Abraham. And there were some who shared the faith of Abraham, who believed God. And when they saw the Messiah, when they saw Yeshua HaMashiach, when they recognized him, when they saw in this man the seed promised to Abraham, who would bring blessing not only to Abraham's family, but to the nations, to the world. They believed in him. They received him. And they became children of Abraham. And the promise that was given through Hosea to those who believed, to faithless people who believed in the end, was this promise. They will be called children of the living God. And John says to you, he says to you this evening in this room, or listening by webcast, he says to you that if you receive Jesus for who he says he is, if you believe in his name, God gives to you by his power and authority the right to be his children, to have his name upon you. To belong, to have an identity that is eternal in its duration. The right to be called children of God. That is a miracle. It's the kind of miracle that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 66. When he looks into the far distant future. And he describes as he looks into the far distant future a moment, a time in history when there will be a remarkable birth of the people of God, as it were, out of nothing, a new creation occurring, a marvelous thing. And he says this, before Jerusalem was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she was delivered of a child. Shall a nation be born in one moment? As soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Without human participation, without human initiative, without human decision, as, as John says here, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, born of God. In a moment, Isaiah's vision is coming about even today, when people are born into this new life in Jesus Christ. And then John reaches his climax, his punchline, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Here's the new creation itself. This divine being, the Word who was with God and who was God, verse 1, becomes flesh. Those, those if you like, are, are, the, uh, are the brackets around this whole section. The Word that was in the beginning with God and was God through whom everything was made, became flesh. And John, as he writes this, 
is very careful in the language he uses. He doesn't say that the word became anthropos, that is, a man, a human being. He doesn't say the word became soma, a human body. He says the word became, and he uses one of the crudest words he can use, sarks, flesh. Flesh. All of the human person in creaturely existence as distinct from God. Think of this. The Word. The Word. The one who dwells in light inaccessible, whom no man has seen or can see. The Word becomes flesh. Human. At a fixed point in time and space. In a remote and insignificant region of Galilee. In a little known and much despised village called Nazareth. The Word became flesh. Doesn't say he was changed into a human being. That is that he was God and he became human. Doesn't say that. Nor does it say that he took on humanity as if he kind of cobbled it onto his existence, as if it were a disguise or a role or something additional that he had. doesn't say that. He was born human. That's what it says. The Word was God, and the Word is man. Those are the realities. Very God of very God, very man of very man. It's an amazing thing. The Word became flesh. And you know, the Bible has prepared us for what that means. It's told us what flesh is. Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 40, all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. And the word has become flesh. You see? In fact, if you look at that quotation from Isaiah, and you just glance at a couple of verses before it, you'll read these words, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And if you put all that together, you'll find the very language from our passage here, the word glory, which comes up in a moment, flesh, it's all there in Isaiah, and now it's all there in the word made flesh. Flesh is the exact opposite of glory. There is, uh, I suppose, for a short span in your life, you may look pretty good. You know, if you're been training and you know, all your muscles are all supple and you know, your skin is still soft and wrinkle-free and all that stuff, but flesh... Flesh fades and wrinkles and dies. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Isn't that amazing? John doesn't fill in the background to this, but he knows that we already have Matthew and Mark. He writes after them. They're already in circulation. We know the story. What did it mean for the Word to become flesh? We know that he was born into a tribe, a tribe of Judah. Judah, who slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He, he, he was brought into, born into a family that had, in its background, a woman called Rahab. Rahab was a professional lady. She was a card-carrying prostitute. Can I tell you this? Christianity is the only religion in the world that can take a prostitute and transform her into a grandmother of God made flesh. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That means for you that it doesn't matter what's in your background, doesn't matter what's in your genes, doesn't matter what's in your record, doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, God can take you and use you for his own glory. Jesus, the Word, become flesh. But it goes on, and I better not go on too long, but it goes on, and I'll just pick out the first of three statements that are made about the Word made flesh. The Word dwelt among us, we've seen his glory, and from his fullness we've all received. We'll just do, look at the first one, dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word to dwell is a Greek word, skenu, which uh, means to tabernacle, and it's an unusual word. Uh, it's only used in the New Testament here and in the book of Revelation, and it refers to the future dwelling of God in the midst of his redeemed people in the book of Revelation. This opening prologue, however, places its contents in the context of the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the book of Moses, the Torah. And in the Torah, this word skenu in the Greek is used of the tabernacle or the tent in which the worship of Israel took place. And the other tent called the tent of meeting where God would meet with Moses and speak to him as friend to friend. The tabernacle was a sanctuary. God said, Build this tent, and I'll come and dwell there. I'll, I'll come and... That's where I'll stay when I'm with you. I'll, I'll be there in the tent in the Holy of Holies. And the people who made the tabernacle with all its furnishings had to do so according to the pattern laid down by heaven and communicated to them through Moses. And when John here uses the language of the shrine, he's introducing for the very first time in John's gospel an idea that will be developed as the gospel goes on, and it's this, that in Jesus, the Word made flesh, we find the final, final, absolute dwelling place of God. He is, as he will point out, the final temple. The final temple. His flesh becomes, if you will, the skin of the temple, the tent the dwelling of God. The writer to the Hebrews helps us to understand this when he uh, 
He talks about the physical temple in Jerusalem and he says that temple and the tabernacle that before it, the, the tent before it, were only ever types. They were only pointers to the heavenly temple. And they pointed forward to the latter days for that, what he calls, the greater and more perfect tabernacle that was going to come. Hebrews 9, verse 11. So even if in Israel they rebuild a te temple there, it will not be the final temple that Ezekiel is speaking about. Because that temple has already come. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in Jesus, and through Jesus, we meet with God. We meet with Him. Moses met and heard God's Word at the tent of meeting. We now meet and hear God's Word in Jesus. Where does God dwell in all His perfection? The writer Paul says in Colossians that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. So to have Jesus is to have God. That's why a lot of the language that we use as Christians, we don't actually think through some of the language we use. We accept it. We accept it as it stands. Language like being in Christ or coming to God through Christ or in Jesus' name have far greater significance than just phrases that are kind of Christianized phrases. They're actually teaching us something of what this new relationship with God involves. That, that through our connection to Jesus, wherever we are, we have direct access to God. He's everything that we need. In Him, we already are in the heavenly places. We already are in that heavenly temple. Because we are in Christ. That's where our our spiritual location is. And in that heavenly temple, we don't need another high priest. He is our high priest. He is there representing us, just as the high priest bore on his, on his shoulders and on his heart the names of the tribes of Israel. So our high priest bears on his shoulders and on his heart the names of all his elect people all down through the centuries and all across the world. My name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Engraved on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. And we come boldly to the throne of grace because Jesus is our temple. He's the cornerstone of a temple that he's building, in fact, one of the things that the later New Testament teaches us is that by our connection to Him, we are becoming part of that heavenly, that sanctuary that God is building. And one day in the new creation, there'll be no need of a temple in the city because the city will be the temple. The universe will be the temple. And we will be as close to God as Jesus is.
because of our connection to him. In him. In the beloved. In the beloved. God brings us close to him. And his resurrection body, as it goes on to show in John's gospel, is the material God uses for the beginning of the construction of the final temple. So the word was made flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us. John writes as an eyewitness. He asks you to believe on the basis of his eyewitness testimony. He was there. He saw it. He saw the resurrected Jesus that changed the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray this evening that as we come to the Lord Jesus, that we wouldn't push him away, that we wouldn't resist him. We may come with questions. We may come with indecision. But we want this evening to ask that you would give us the grace to embrace him, to receive him, to believe in him, that we might be your children, know ourselves to be your children, part of the family of God, heirs, therefore, to an inheritance that you have reserved for your son and his people. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.